This episode is sponsored by Kendo UI. Kendo UI allows you to build better apps faster. They have a comprehensive library ranging from data grids and charts to buttons and sliders. Plus, you can use their components as plain JavaScript as well as in Angular, React, and Vue. They have a large collection of customizable popular themes like Bootstrap and Material. Go check them out at reactroundup.com slash kendoui. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of React Roundup. This week on our panel, we have Lucas Heisch. Hello from New York. Justin Bennett. Howdy. Also from New York. I'm Charles Maxwood, devchat.tv. And I'm just going to throw out there real quick. I'm getting there on the Get a Coder Job books. So go check it out. We have a special guest, and that is Peter. How do you say your name, Peter? Mbanugo. Awesome. And uh, <laughs> do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Hey, I'm Peter Mbanugo from Nigeria, software developer. I work with Field Intelligence, where we build offline threat supply management systems. Off, and uh, we also have some other products for drug distribution also. So I also do some technical writing and a few other things outside of coding. Awesome. Well, you wrote this uh, blog post about a real-time editable data grid in React. Yeah. Which sounded really interesting. And uh, I thought maybe we could just start there with what you built and how it works, and then we can dive into some of the more specific things that are there. Yeah, it's a real-time editable data grid that it allows you to have some data on a data table that you can edit and then have the data updates synchronized across any connected um, browsers or devices. And I built that with Harmony Sync. Harmony Sync is a real-time state synchronization service that allows you to store and synchronize your and application states in real time. It has a simple API that helps you avoid designing context states logic from scratch, test state and handles conflicts to a good extent. And for the blog, I did the basic demo that I just plugged in with React table and hooked it up to a couple functions to be able to get data updates as connect and update the React app. That's cool. Yeah, Peter, one question. I was looking at the, the, the post, and I saw that you also built the Harmony Sync service, right? Yeah. Right. I, yeah. I built that after I had a couple of, I think I, I worked with real-time stuff a bit uh, sometime in the past and a bit this year. Uh, one of it was trying to do a language exchange application, which required uh, me doing some real-time chat. And most of the time when I've done something like this, I, I had to use maybe some socket IO or some similar open source libraries. And most of the time I have to figure out a way to design how the messages will go across the channel and how to persist the, the messages. And then I built, I built a chat um, API that allows you to easily plug into applications and, and connect and broadcast it to also persist. But that is still in the backlog. I, I didn't follow up with that. Then I decided to work on Harmony Sync 
which is basically just for application states and provide real-time API and avoid me always repeating the tasks of having to figure out which what to name my channels or how to design and where to persist data. So I wanted a simple API to, to do that. That's how I built Harmonisync and blog about it, marketing. And hopefully by next month, I should be able to launch and put up one. That's really awesome. So this the Harmony service uh, says, uh, just reading your, your marketing material, says that it uh, handles uh, going offline. So that's a really challenging problem, something that I've been playing around with, like service workers and stuff to kind of uh, work through recently. How how are you kind of solving that problem? For Harmony, it's, it's basically maybe doing some intermittent connection, maybe when you are already connected and you lose connections all of a sudden and then when the network network is back on, it tries to publish um, any requests you made to the server. If you did them while offline, it would get some new. It would get the latest of the states if you're already working with an application state, but they didn't make any changes. So you typically maybe if you are not connected and you try to do initialize the the SDK, it won't connect because it will need to make connection to the server. It only does that maybe for irregular connections or scenarios where you, the connection is breaking. That's awesome. And in those scenarios too, if two users make changes to the data at the same time, it tries to pick one of them and broadcast that as the, as the latest change. This is this is really interesting, and I believe that this is one of the hardest problems to solve. This concurrency, changing stuff in real time from different clients. So, like every time I try to to do something like really simple to to tackle that problem, I already got into so many so many problems. And so, like, yeah. Congratulations for be, having at least having the courage to, to, to build such a system. system. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's that's a great point. So when you have like, let's say you have someone who's interacting with one of these applications like through mobile and they make an update, but they lose connectivity. And then maybe somebody makes an update on the same table. Like is the... Is the Hanami service like handling all of that kind of behind the hood or behind the scenes? Or? Yeah, when bo both makes changes and they both get to the server, it would pick the first one to hit the server. And then if the other person connects later on, it would give him the latest change of uh, from what the other user who was able to connect first made and discard its own change. Oh, that's awesome. I'd be interested in like there's the diffing algorithms that are needed to be able to like sync data in those scenarios are kind of crazy difficult. It'd be really interesting to dig into that. Yeah. Last time, last time I tried to do something related to that, I had a friend that he said like, "Oh, I I was trying to do something, so I'm I'm gonna send you some links." And I thought they were like simple blog posts, and they were like complicated papers <laughs> and I was like whoa okay so it's not an easy it's not an easy task yeah it's um, offline and data synchronization are 
quite pretty hard. I myself am learning almost every day. And there are a couple of ways people and services go about it. I think CouchDB has a good way of doing that too and using some deterministic approach. A couple of months ago, I also read something about think conflict-free replicated data types. I also considered that later while building Harmony Sync, but didn't think that was the way to go. And I didn't want it to be something heavy on the client. So I just chose to do something that would be lightweight on the client and also serve the same purpose. Okay, so if I if I set set up Harmony Sync connection and I'm using back back bringing back to the React world, right? So you have to work with it uh, in kind of a, a reactive way, like with observables and, and something like that, right? You need to like e uh, listen to events and react to that. So how do you think, in, in your experience, how did how did you how did React work in this world? I, I've heard a lot of people saying that they have the opinion that if you work with observables and things like that, React is not the best framework for that. So what are your opinions on that? Well, I haven't worked a lot with observables, the RxJS library too. But I think React's reactivity system is quite okay. And I just uh, plug into that and either use callbacks, events, but not um, those other observables. I have no experience in that direction. I can't offer some preferences on that. But I think they are quite good. I've seen a couple of talks on them, and I think they are quite good to work with. Yep, nice. I was uh, going back to look at some of the... I was trying to remember the name of the algorithms that I was kind of reading up on uh, for like synchronizing the data. So there's, there's, I guess, two types that I know of. So uh, operational transformations and CRDTs. Uh, CRDT is a conflict, commutative replicated data types or conflict-free replicated data types, something like that. I don't know. Uh, back in the day, I was uh, playing around with uh, ShareJS, which... Uh, kind of provide some of that implementation, but uh, I, don't, I haven't looked at it in a long time. That's, that's a really hard problem. <laughs> yep, definitely. Like it, this, all these, when, when, when we start working with uh, the offline world, we were bringing like a new, a new time variable to everything we do, right? So back, back when we could still lock things, and make sure that we have like IDs like this particular uh, this particular session is only going to 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 communicate through through this uh, device and things like that. Now that we have like multiple devices and they can be really far from from each other in terms of time. Like I can be like offline for one hour and then I have a bunch of updates that I need to 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 send to the same server. I think this is this is a, a really complicated world. It's even one could say that there are a lot of techniques that now we use in UI that, that are similar to, to those problems because UI is the same thing. You have a long living process and people are just sending events to, to your screen. You need to react to them. You need to make sure that your UI is on states that are not impossible to get and, and communicate, communicates well with the services. This is definitely a hard, a hard problem we're solving now. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that like some of these problems are a little bit more approachable now. So I think for the longest time, just because of the complexity involved in, you know, not just like solving data synchronization, but even like interacting with applications uh, in an, with an intermittent uh, internet connection, um, that's kind of made a lot of, you know, our, our products or things that we build not really approachable to those who might have like not a great in, or network connection or, and, and I also think about things like how does, you know, performance play into this whole story too. I mean, so it not only like synchronizing data offline, but like, what if you're, you know, internet intermittent connection and you're trying to download this service worker or whatever, just so you can have offline support. But if it's like, you know, really huge, um, you could, that could be interrupted and then you can't use the application anyway. So these are like problems that I hope, I'm glad to see that there's more kind of more initiatives to tackle these. Yes. The, the interesting thing is that I believe that today in the mobile world, it affects everyone, no matter where they are. Like back in Brazil, we had problems with connections because it is Brazil and some areas you just like can't uh, have a good connection. And now uh, living in New York, when you think, oh, it's super developed world, like just enter subway and you also lose your connection from time to time. So I think this is a problem that affects probably like anywhere in the world. If you are on mobile, you'll be offline at some point, right? So you need to deal with that problem. Yeah, I agree. I think initially I thought offline and this connectivity issues were something we experienced here in West Africa because of connection issues, uh, which also got me really interested in offline first. Well, seeing the advancements in in the web world and with service workers, background sync, and some other libraries trying to help solve that problem. I think uh, it's a general problem and gradually we are getting to a better solution to solve them. And uh, I think I remember, I think some days ago, one of our colleagues went out to for some demo training and our application had to load on first online to get some data. And because the connection was very, very slow, he couldn't even start of the app and it felt like it was not working. And it took a couple of minutes before it was able to at least pull down service workers and get a few things set up for it to work, which is also really hard. So how does that change your uh, development workflow? What, what are the kind of things that you think about when uh, developing an application that might be, might pretty much always be either offline or in a really slow connection well, I think the important thing is making application very, really lightweight because that will help save files that are even on a very slow connection. These days, uh, there are a lot of um, libraries and packages for doing, for building things, and developers would usually tend to add them all up to their applications to maybe ease up the programming, make things look cool, and they really do not know how this affects users in different regions. So I think being able to to care how much you are passing down the wire to your users is really important. 
the days before we had fast connections today, pages were maybe a few kilobytes of size and and they would still maybe not up to a minute go down the wire and to their destination. But with um, with the way it is today, you see applications that could take up to five megabytes of data to just load the the page for the first time. And it's really frustrating for first time users. And uh, some things to also consider is how how your your users would use the application and the watch regions, which could guide you in maybe things to factor in your your development. Some applications might just need um, service workers and maybe index DB to store some data online. Some are quite um, intensive and you could plug in something like CouchDB, PouchDB to, to communicate um, for complex scenarios or maybe some other services like that to help you solve that. And uh, I think also I've seen AWS AppSync, which I've not really tried and I think it's quite a, a cool solution to also consider during development of such applications. I'd like to give uh, a little bit of a shout out to the the Chrome team. So the audits tab in the Chrome Devs tools has what's well, basically runs this tool called Lighthouse, which is a it's a performance tool, but it it does a lot of like sort of different things. Uh, it you know can test for like accessibility, best practices, SEO stuff like that, but uh, it it has some good kind of sane defaults. So it does things like CPU throttling and trying to test like mobile first. I know a lot of times, especially when I started just learning about performance, I didn't think enough about like the types of devices users would be using uh, when they're interacting with the site. So, you know, even optimizing for like <sighs> over the wire payload, just like, yeah, I want to have that gzip size as small as possible if your uncompressed size is like really, really huge, the devices still have to parse all that and like, you know, run it. So that's also a consideration that we should always be mindful of. And the, uh, if you haven't used it before, the audits tab on Chrome DevTools uh, really helps uh, think about some of those things. Deploy more, pay less with DigitalOcean the simplest all-in-one cloud computing platform for developers. Scale and run cloud applications faster and more efficiently with effortless administration tools to robust compute, flexible configurations, networking services, real-time alerts, and rapid provisioning while enjoying industry-leading price-to-performance with a flat pricing structure across all global data center regions at any usage volume. Spend more time building better web apps and less time worrying about managing infrastructure with DigitalOcean. Build your next app on DigitalOcean. Get started with a free $100 credit at do.co slash roundup. Uh, Peter, are there any any like performance related tools that you use to kind of test, you know, maybe the over the wire payloads or download speeds or, you know, any sort of, you know, any sort of optimization tools? For now, I still use the Chrome Dev Tools, the audits panel and to look up to see how the app performs. Why sometimes we would usually go on a field trip with our users to 
see how the application behaves in those environments and also for mobile users get similar phones to to what they are using usually some low-end phones and try to test how the application performs in those environments too cool cool lucas uh same sort of question are there any like performance related tools that you use or think about that kind of helps yeah, this is an interesting question because one year ago when I joined ZocDoc here, that was my first mission uh, in the company. Like we were very, even though the, the the website was doing pretty well on SEO, we were a little bit in the dark. We didn't know like how good we were and we were doing a big migration and we it was not clear the actual impact of performance of the migration that, that we that we were making. So my first my first mission here was to 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 start using a tool that I used uh, back in in B2W my previous job which is called Speed Curve. And it's an amazing tool and only gets better. This is like uh, if your company needs to 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 acquire a tool Speed Curve is 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 really great and now uh, I think it's it's been two months already, they have the Lighthouse uh, measurements on them in their dashboards integrated with, with their dashboards from, from their servers. So you can also like follow uh, through time your, your scores and all the analysis to, to, to understand how to act awesome performance. So these are the, this is the, the tool we use today. And they have both they have both synthetic and real user monitoring. So when we uh, when we are measuring things on our Chrome, usually it's like it's a picture of your machine. Usually dev dev uh, development machines are better than the general public machines. So we have like a very biased picture of things. And I like that they make both like synthetic, like laboratory kind of measurements that they can film your page and then compare through time how things are going, analyze your assets. And they also have the real user monitoring stuff that you put uh, some code on your, on your application. It collects uh, statistics from, from real users. I've used New Relic before too, that they have a similar thing, but it's more complete with error handling and things like that. I um, I believe those tools are 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 a great help, great help, and I'm pretty sure there are some open sources, open source initiatives now, but I still did not did not play with uh, any of those. Have you, have you tried Calibre? No, I didn't. Uh, I didn't try. We were uh, we we looked at it because, because yeah. We looked at it because of the they have this. They're based on Lighthouse, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, similar. Yeah, so we, we, we wanted to, to have that, like we wanted to, to see the, the Lighthouse numbers through time, but Speed Curve, the other benefits of Speed Curve were, were more important for, for us in, in that moment. And now Speed Curve also has the Lighthouse, the Lighthouse measurements. So I'm happy. So what, do you use Calibre? No, I've seen, uh, read a few of their blogs and how they do things. And those are one of the things I would like to try out soon. And once we are about to implement or incorporate some things for our solutions here, so interesting you use speed call. I think I'll check that out too. Yep. 
Yeah, well, yeah, Calibre seems uh, really cool too. Yeah, yeah. I also used uh, Speed Curve at my last job, uh, and it's it's really great. One of the things that I think is a little bit underrated is that it gives really great visualizations that are kind of easy for people to see. So we used Speed Curve to kind of tell the performance story. Which is something that is is a really important thing, especially if you have to, you know, report to executive members of staff. It's like, you know, performance is hard to describe and it's a a complicated problem. But uh, having like good visualizations where they can kind of see like where we're at, how we're doing, how we're doing relative to where we were um, is, is pretty powerful. Yeah, and so this is, I have a, an interesting story about uh, in my previous job in BitchW, we used uh, Speed Curve to, to monitor also uh, both uh, real users and, and the synthetic measurements. And our website was getting slower and slower. Like every month, every it, month. Would, it, would, it would get slower a little bit in our u- real users. And we were making it better and faster. So in the synthetic measurements, we were getting faster, but in the real user monitoring, we were getting slower. So we thought there was problems with the tool and things like that. We could not, we could not uh, understand like for at least, I don't know, like a, a, an afternoon, that crazy puzzle was in our minds. We were like, what is happening to, 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 to our application that it's getting slower as it gets faster? And it, ter- it turns out that as the application was getting slower, more people were, were starting to use it on mobile. More people were being able to, to use it on mobile. So the real user speed was going up because more people were using mobile. As soon as we start like uh, differentiating desktop from mobile, we saw what was happening. So the share of mobile users was increasing because performance was getting better. So if you put everything and you look like on overall average of the time it was getting slower so that that was an interesting uh, lesson on like how to how to look at data how to interpret data how to get knowledge and insights from it and really interesting so on on desktop it was getting better but for the mobile users it was slower no, actually, it was getting better for everyone, but more people w- was were uh, migrating to mobile. So more users were uh, using the website from their cell phones. Oh. So as more users were 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 using their cell phones, the the average uh, performance of our users was going up. Oh, so, I see. Yeah, so it's interesting because since you made the website faster, more people were able to use mobile. But you need to explain that really well in a report. <laughs> uh, so taking the conversation back to React really quick. Yeah, so uh, the usage of React table in, in your blog post, Peter, was pretty interesting. I, I've tried to use uh, several table implementations in the past. The primary one that I've used is Hanson table. And that kind of goes back to the, to the jQuery days when I started using that. But it's always a really challenging problem. And I often find that a lot of these implementations kind of are, are hard to use. So Peter, what was your experience with uh, React Table? Um, did you, what did you like about it? What, what problems did it give you? Well, React Table is quite light, I think less than five kilobytes in size. And I think it handles quite a good amount of data on the clients. Haven't really had 
that much of a problem with it, which I think is quite um, okay to use. And the other ones, I haven't really tried them. I just know about them, but I haven't really tried Cool, cool. Lucas or Charles, have y'all used any other table implementations? Yeah, so I... Fortunately, I could always escape from those problems too. <laughs> those, <laughs> yeah, uh, I've only, I never worked with either like big tables that need that need to 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 have uh, rendering optimizations in order to render the massive data, or tables that need to be edited and and stuff like that. So I, I don't have a lot of experience with those components only playing here and there and it's it's always like very interesting because it is it's one of those components that are fighting a little bit the 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 the, the web how to say the platform and it's always a good source of interesting solutions yeah and i've played with a few i've kind of fiddled with my own for certain things and then i've also for the most part I've used things that that don't do the sync part of this, but they have all of the like editable data grid kind of things. So Kendo UI has one, I think. Oh, what's the Grape City one? Anyway, so they, they kind of have these nice sortable, editable data tables is another one that I've played with. So they kind of come with a bunch of features plugged in. And I find that I either need something that's really, really bare bones that just kind of displays the data, or I need something that or at least I want something that's a little more interactive. And so I reach for Kendo UI or I think another one that I've seen but haven't played with is AG Grid. So yeah, I, I tend to go to one extreme or the other. And I, I generally don't build that particular part of the solution myself. Yeah, it's a, it's a really hard problem, especially just just the problem of like having this really long, indefinite list of things potentially that you have to render out. A library that's been on my radar recently is uh, React Window. It's by one of the React core team members. I forget his name though. Anyway, it uh, it just optimizes it optimizes like long lists. So as you scroll through them, it doesn't like render the entire list. It just kind of re- renders the things that are kind of in the current window or you know above and below uh, a certain extent. Brian Vaughn is yeah. Brian Vaughn yeah yeah that's it. But uh, that's that's a really cool library. So if you're <laughs> thinking about rolling your own uh, yeah. table, uh, I don't recommend. It's it's one of those interesting, interesting problems to 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 try to tackle a little bit as a learning tool, but quickly like you found you find so many edge cases and so many optimizations that you need to do that you just reach out to to a good tool. This is also like an interesting question. Like how do you how do y'all decide when to when to actually start using a library? Is it as early as you can? Like first, of, you, you you try to find libraries for your problems. Do you try to 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 like a problem like that? Do you try a little bit yourself to see where where it goes? What what is your thought process on that? Well, I think it depends on on what I'm trying to solve. For data tables, I've always used something built by others. I think the the people that does can do UI use to do something for ASP.NET web forms back in the days. And I was practically using their products for applications in the .NET world. And for JavaScript, I basically look for 
some libraries and maybe based on popularity and how easy to use it is and the documentation. I think this is a really fascinating question. And it's one of those things where I don't think there's a one size fits all answer. So it to me, it's always a balance between product deliverable needs, like, you know, shipping as whenever you need to ship, what the actual needs of the product are. Is there a library that fits those needs? You know, performance, testing, maintenance, like all those sorts of things. Like if the library is popular and well-maintained, then, you know, it's code that you don't have to maintain. But if it falls out of popularity, if it, you know, isn't maintained anymore, um, there's a lot of, there can be risk associated with that. On the other hand, if you're doing it yourself, then you have the debt of maintaining that. Um, so so it, it's it's a pretty fine balance. One of the things that I find my do, myself doing a lot on like personal projects is I will default to using a library first for any feature that is relatively large, but not like critical to what I'm doing. You know, it, it'd be one thing if I'm like, building a spreadsheet service, then I might want to think about like, you know, custom table implementation potentially. But if there's like a pretty like hairy feature and there's a library for it, I'm going to default to that until I need, you know, my needs like justify going in and, and changing it or uh, customizing it in some way. And, And even then, one thing I would recommend people do, and it's a, a great pleasure of working at Artsy is we have a, a motto of, you know, rely on the open source community and give back. So just because you want to change something doesn't necessarily mean you still can't use a library. I mean, if it's open source, you can always contribute and try to try to get that feature in. It's a great way to learn, but it all goes down to like what your needs are. Yeah, yeah, I I think in a similar in a similar way, it's it's probably the same uh, answer as buy or or build right when you when you are able to to buy a tool or something like that and or build it in house it's all a matter of if it's uh, the more generic things are the less you want to try you, you, you would like to to spend time on that because you want to differentiate yourself right so some some problems are already really well solved like you can go to the extreme of like uh, versioning control like i love git i love github i don't need to to create a github just to start coding right so i'm going to use github so and if you go on that beginning of the spectrum until like the libraries you use there's like a cutting point find that cutting point is is complicated sometimes and i've already because i've been burned from both sides i've been burned from both trying to do in-house something that is simple today and when it evolving becomes a big burden on us and it's not something that we should be working on it's not our product and on the other side uh, we've been burned about like abstracting too early like getting something too early and that library doesn't doesn't uh, scale well with our other problems, and then we need to 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 choose a different one. And so I've been burned by 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 both sides. I, I find it interesting that Peter is here today because he actually created a complete service for real time updating. So this is this is interesting. So if you're going to build, try try to make a business out of it, right? Yeah. 
Charles, I'm curious what your approach is. I know that you have like a whole lot of stuff going on, and I'm sure that there are some different considerations of when to build versus when to use something off the shelf. Kind of what's your thought process around that? <laughs> my my process for a lot of this stuff is if I can find something off the shelf, I will use it. Generally, the amount of time it takes me to build something versus what it costs to run a service or you know to pay somebody for a service, it's not even close, right? My my time adds up much more quickly than than the dollars do. So yeah, if I have if I have the choice, I'll I'll buy I'll pay for something off the shelf. That said, I only mess around for so long though before I give up. Oh, there's nothing out there that does exactly what I need, and then I'll go build it. So one example of this is I tried for a long time to run things with like Google Docs and Zapier for the podcasts, mm-hmm. and I finally just gave up. Right with all the different scheduling and outreach and all the other things that I have to do. I got kind of close with Zapier, but it's still, it's, it's basically it just ties together a bunch of other systems. And I got to the point where I realized that I just needed to put something together that would, you know, that would just do what I needed to. And so I started building it in Ruby on Rails. So yeah, so as far as, yeah, when I opt for one or the other, if I can't find something that will do enough of what I need, then I, then I opt for paying or building something. But generally I'll, I'll just go and, uh, pay for it and see how close I can get. I like that approach. Yeah, I think we don't do we don't do a very good job in general of valuing our time or like understanding how much or how expensive time is. Uh, so that's that's a really good point. Yeah, it's hard. And I think a lot of times as well, I mean, I'm in the position where I own the business and, you know, I, I spend a lot of time doing the podcast production and management stuff. And so my time being a value is more of a thing for me. I think a lot of times it's easier to fall into the trap if no matter what you do, as long as you're showing up to work, they're going to keep sending you a paycheck. So unless you're falling behind on the other things that they've put out as expectations, and not all businesses are good at that, you can go out and you can work on more or less whatever you need to to get the job done. And sometimes that's building something that you don't necessarily need to build. And, you know, I'm not saying this is a universal problem, but it is a trap that I've seen a number of people fall into. So I've found uh, myself in, in situations where I'm looking around and thinking like, we are not all working on what we should be working, right? That sensation. So like, this is not, this is not what is going to, to bring business like to, to the place where we want it to be. Like we are, we're, we're losing time. This is like, productive time that we are using with stuff that is not like our business, our our main Mm -hmm. focus. So I think we should work as much as we can on what is our core product? What is our main focus? Like try to, 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 to get your customers and and make them like have a, a better life, something like that, you know, like you need to, you need to be on the mission of your company. And I even uh, believe that probably the, the 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 web community that started doing that most and did well was the Ruby community that you were very par- a big part of, right, Charles? Like it, it was always about having solutions and focusing on the product, right? Generally, yes. But even then, I, I've seen a lot of Rubyists fall into this trap too. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and I think that the the JavaScript and React community now now I believe that 
we have some tools that are very like focused and 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 well developed and, and things like that. But as as we all know, it's super easy to to fall. We are all developers, engineers. We are we all love to to play with building blocks. So that's true. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say that I've actually had a few people have to remind me, dude, you're a developer, you can fix this problem, you know, because I complain, I've spent years looking for the right solution. And they're like, yeah, if you spent years looking for it, it's either not out there or not easy to find. And dude, you're a developer. <laughs> and so That's it. I, I, I opt so strongly the other way sometimes that I need that reminder that, hey, you know, I can go build it myself. Yeah. The thing that I struggle with a lot is just really estimating like what the difficulty of something is uh so I'll, I'll be like oh yeah i don't know of a good solution for this and, and i am a developer i can build it but then like i start on it and then i realize like all the steps that i need to take to get to wherever i need to be for this thing to be useful and i have to it comes back to is this valuable enough for me to invest this much time on and a lot of times I end up stopping like partway down that path just because I realize that the value that the final solution will provide me doesn't really justify the the time sink. Um, unfortunately, though, <laughs> generally, I don't find that out until I've invested <laughs> a good chunk of time into it. And then the sunken cost bias kicks in and you're like, oh, I already did all this work. Why do not just finish it? And then you are in the yeah. middle of the an iceberg. <laughs> you need to still need to do ninety percent of the work sometimes, right? Yep. Yep. All right. Anything else we want to jump on here before we go to picks? I'm good. Peter. Oh, Peter, if you if people want to find you online or go check out um, Harmony, where do they go? You can check out Harmony on Harmony.tech. H-A-M-O-N-I dot tech. And you can find me on Twitter, P underscore M-B-E-N-U-G-O. Pretty much most of my stuff on Twitter and on the Dev2 blog. And usually there. And you can they can feel free to message me anytime. All right. Sounds good. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Justin, do you have some picks for us? Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers. Or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course and ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks to two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or are looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. Sure. Yeah, I've got two picks. One is, I guess, a little bit personal. I So I work at Artsy and we have an engineering blog. Kind of encourage all of our all of our engineers to, to contribute to this as a part of like our learning journey. So not everything on here is like, 
super well-refined, well-thought-out things, a lot of it is just like us learning and figuring out technology. So I, I highly recommend checking out the RC blog. And, you know, all of our stuff is open source as well. So if you see references to things in the blog, you probably can find production code. The other thing, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts lately, and I've, I'm kind of in an, on an entrepreneurial kick where I'm just really consuming a lot of entrepreneurial content. So if you've never heard of the site Indie Hackers, it's a, it's a really awesome site that kind of gives interviews to startup founders or just company founders. And it gives a lot of really interesting information like revenue statistics. And it's, it's a really awesome resource. And they also have a podcast. Um, so if you're interested in entrepreneurial stuff, it's great. All right, Lucas, what are your picks? All right, my pick today is a blog post from a blog that is one of those that changes your mind forever. It's one of the uh, best sources for learning functional programming. It's the author is called Scott Lushing. I don't know how to pronounce that. I'll put the, the link up. And his blog is called F Sharp for, for Fun and Profit. But the concepts he talks about, they're not uh, only F-sharp related. It's like programming in general. And this post is called 13 Ways of Looking at a Turtle. He implements like a simple, a simple. Uh, I don't know if you all remember the logo uh, programming language that you like make a turtle, like uh, pan down, walk forward, turn to the right, walk forward a little bit more. It was like a kid's uh, programming language back when, when I was in school. And then he, he talks about like 13 ways of, of implementing that. And, it, and he touches probably like every big way of looking at programming from object-oriented techniques to functional programming techniques to, I don't know, even log logic programming techniques, some, some of them. So this post is really, it's really amazing. That's my pick for the day. All right, cool. I'm going to jump in here with a couple of picks. Uh, we talked around some of the concepts of a book I just finished. And so I'm going to call out the book and then I'm going to just, you know, really quickly make the connection. The book is The One Thing. And it talks about, you know, what is the one thing that can make things easier or make things um, so that you don't have to do them anymore. And, it, you know, we, we talked a little bit about, okay, should you build it or buy it, you know, or subscribe to it or whatever. And yeah, you know, it's, it's that same kind of focus, you know, it's what can I do right now that's going to have uh, the biggest impact on whether or not I need to continue doing something or things like that. And so, you know, just, just that recommendation, just look at it from the standpoint of what, you know, what's going to mitigate a whole bunch of effort, you know, what, what's going to save me the most time, what's going to have the biggest impact on, on the big thing that we're about at whatever company you work for. So I'm going to throw that out there. I have a few other things coming along. One of them is, I, I guess it's kind of an announcement. So I am finishing up the Get a Coder Job book and video course. As we record this, it'll be out next week. So if you want to go out and uh, pick it up, if you're looking for a job, you're trying to find your first job, or you know, you're not sure you have enough experience to get your next job, or if you're working remotely, I kind of treat all three of those in the book. Most of the concepts are the same. Some things change for remote, but they're pretty minor things. It's just kind of in the approach you use to get noticed. But yeah, definitely check that out, getacoderjob.com. One other thing that I just set up is I've had a lot of people asking me for t-shirts, 
and mugs and stuff like that with the podcast artwork on them. And so if you go to swag.devchat.tv, I've been putting that artwork up. And so you can uh, pick that up there. And then finally, I set up a Kickstarter and it'll be interesting to see how this all goes. But the project is called codebadge.org. And what it is, is I want to build an application because I ask people, I get asked by people all the time, how do I stay current? And I give people general guidelines, but most people, they, they kind of need the step-by-step process. And I'll probably wind up making a course on this to keep current. But uh, I thought, well, what, what if there was like a badge or some kind of, you know, social proof that people could use to say, hey, I've spent a couple hours, you know, studying Webpack or I've built a Webpack config or I've built an app with Redux or I've built an app with MobX or, you know, so just things like that. And so it'll allow people to basically claim the badges uh, for the things they've worked on and allow them to link back into pull requests or projects on GitHub so that they can say, I've done blah, blah, blah with MobX. Here's the badge, right? And then if somebody clicks on their badge, then it'll take them and it'll show them they built it. You know, here's the project they built with MobX and they can see what they did with it. So anyway, uh, kind of a fun idea. It's up on Kickstarter and uh, I'd really appreciate the support. If you go to codebadge.org, it should have a link on there that'll take you there. And you can also sign up for the launch email for when that goes live. So anyway, sorry to plug all the stuff I'm working on, but that's kind of where I've been thinking. Uh, Peter, what are your picks? Well, I have a couple. I think the first one for me is a JavaScript library called Hoodie. It's a an open source, fast and simple backend as a service that you can use to build offline first JavaScript apps. And um, you can find it on hood.ie on the internet. My second pick is a podcast by uh, Ray Hoffman of LinkedIn. Uh, Masters of Skill, where he interviews a couple of um, business owners, founders on how they scale and grow their, their businesses, which I think is really interesting for, for people looking to uh, go into the entrepreneurial world. And the third one is a book which I read and I love. It's titled Ego is the Enemy. It draws on a vast array of stories and examples from literature to philosophy and uh, um, offers a couple of strategies and tactics that we can use to enhance and develop personally. And the fourth one is also a book titled um, Essentialism and the Discipline Pursuit Pursuit of Less. And it's not a time management book, but it offers a systematic discipline of how to Descend what is absolutely essential and eliminating how to eliminating how to eliminate things that are not important. There are chapters that talks about how to uncommit from things you've said yes to and offer some tips on how to say no to to requests. And I think the last one I would just like to say that Harmonious Inc. will be launching in September and Product Hunt and. You should check it out and subscribe to on to get more info and help get some upvotes when we launch. That's all for me. All right. Very cool. Well, thank you for coming and talking to us. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and uh, wrap this episode up and we will 
Catch everyone next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more. <laughs>